This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, I'm sure that by now everyone has heard of the Faceback debacle. A Canadian whistleblower revealed how a third-party company called Cambridge Analytics got access to personal data from 50 million Facebook users and mined it to benefit Donald Trump's campaign. Of course, even before, we've heard of uh, Russian actors using Facebook to influence the outcome of American and other elections. Now, of course, at the root of the issue is how the firm improperly obtained and exploited that data. Last night, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg finally broke his silence and apologized apologized on CNN. He also acknowledged that it's time to impose more regulations on technology companies. A lot of people, as you heard in Bob's News, say that is too little, too late. There's a campaign to boycott Facebook. It's gathering strength. And as it turns out, though, Facebook is the social media platform that Zoomers are most likely to subscribe to, to keep up with family, to keep up with friends. So what do you think? Are you ready to hashtag delete Facebook? And if you are, you have to make sure that you do it the right way. I'd like to hear from you on this. Does it make you um, mistrust all social media? What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And right now we are going to Michael Edwards, a strategist with Sussex Adrenaline, and Professor David Murakami-Wood from Queen's University, who is a surveillance expert. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Likewise. Thank you. Okay, let's start with you, uh, Michael. So, um, first of all, uh, is Mark Zuckerberg handling this the right way? Um, Yes and no. I think he's doing the best that he can possibly do, given the circumstances. I think the reality here is he's facing the backlash that's not just from this article on Friday or this news on Friday, but something that's really been building up for months and months since the last uh, presidential election. You know, you have the Russian scandal, you have a number of uh, investigations into the role that Facebook plays and the role that Facebook and social media should play. And now this is kind of the icing uh, on the cake, so to speak. So he's definitely in a difficult position. And I kind of feel uh, whatever he says or does is not going to be the right answer just because of the backlash and the outrage that people have here. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, I uh, thought he sounded quite contrite. You know, he was saying things like, if we can't protect your data, we don't deserve your business. Uh, He said, you know, maybe it's time for regulation. He did take a long time before he said anything that's uh, that's for sure. But as you said, it's been building. I mean, it's not the first time that there's been any an issue with, um, you know, you're leaving digital footprints online, David uh, Wood. Well, yeah, it's not the first time at all. And I'm, I'm not sure his response was 
particularly adequate in the circumstances. I mean, if you read the details of it, he's saying like, you know, it, it was us, but it wasn't us. We solved it in 2014, but actually we didn't. And then we tried again and we didn't solve it then either. And, you know, you've got to remember as well that last year, in, uh, earlier on in the year, uh, Zuckerberg published this amazing open letter to the Facebook community in which, you know, rather than saying there are problems, we're going to solve them, what he said was that basically Facebook would run the world better than nation states. I mean, it's, it's an amazing That's uh, true. Um, and, you know, rather, so he didn't seem, you know, until very recently to realize the extent of the problem that he was facing. Uh, Michael, um, do you think, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get a fix on how many people have actually deleted Facebook. The hashtag delete Facebook appeared more than 10,000 times on Twitter in a two hour period yesterday, and it was mentioned more than 40,000 times on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't know an exact number for you, but my guess would be not that many people. I think the reality is Facebook, it's just so ingrained in our digital lives that it would be nearly impossible to uh, delete. I mean, you think of all of the apps that you have on your phone, odds are you're using services from Netflix to the music you listen to signed up through your Facebook account. So it would be a, it would be a very difficult, difficult task, I think, for most people. It would be almost like the equivalent of saying, you know what, I'm giving up my passport uh, because I'm outraged at something. And so I think there's definitely that sentiment. And we see backlash a lot of times when there's major changes or major errors or oversights made by these tech companies. But in reality, we've just become so dependent on their platforms and the services they provide that uh, I think it's actually very, very difficult. So I think you'll see that backlash start to die down. Uh, I, I mean, I could be wrong. It, it could grow and grow. But I just think the effort that the average person would need to go to uh, to actually kind of continue using the services and use the Internet and their phones the way they do without Facebook would just be very, very challenging. Well, I, I have to say, speaking for myself, I never, uh, I never got into Facebook. I have a Facebook account that I don't use. I use other platforms, but um, th there always is another way. I mean, whatever I want to do, they say, "Do you want to sign up through Facebook?" And I just say, "No, do it another way." I mean, would it be that hard, well, uh, Professor? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's the uh, that's the issue, right? I mean, who here remembers MySpace? You know, at one point. It seemed that everybody and their dog had a MySpace account, and you couldn't, you know, imagine doing things without MySpace. MySpace is now a tiny little island in the Internet world that hardly has any influence whatsoever. Facebook's only really been around since 2008, you know, roughly in, in, in an international sense. And while it has acquired a great deal of influence, in fact, you know, I, I could see something, some other system that did things better taking over very easily. One of the other sides of you know, the convenience we have with, with internet apps is that it is actually pretty easy to replace one platform with another in this sense. In that sense, Facebook has not become a full platform yet. It's, it's, it's very convenient, but it's not become that. Now, where they are really trying to make this work is in, in, uh, in the global south, in developing countries. And there, Facebook has made a concerted effort to have itself identified with the internet you know, completely. They, they provide a service called Free, Free Basics, which is like a gateway to the entire Internet. And in many countries, um, you know, that they haven't got uh, a great deal of Internet service, people think that Facebook is the Internet. So it's, in some ways, that's where the biggest problem is. You know, for a few people in, in the global north turning off their accounts, this is a, 
if you like, first world problems, is the is the phrase. Well, well, exactly. Uh, but um, Michael, I just want to know how, how difficult is it to cover your tracks digitally? I mean, uh, unless I'm looking for, uh, you know, directions, uh, all the times, whenever I get asked, uh, can we have your location? I, I just say no. Uh, does that help at all? I mean, yeah, definitely that helps. Uh, when, you're, when you get those little permission things on your phone or when you're on the internet, uh, those are taken uh, quite seriously by the platforms, whether it's your iPhone or your Android phone or what have you. Um, but I think the reality is we need to accept that we're giving away data uh, pretty much at all times, from where we walk to where we work to when we use the phone to what social networks we're on. Uh, you look at email, you look not too long ago at the Yahoo hacking scandal, which in my opinion was a much, much, much bigger story uh, from a privacy perspective, a security perspective than this is. I think, though, Facebook being in the spotlight and just a um, sensational story that goes along with it when you compound all these factors. That's what kind of gets us to where we are today. Um, but I think the reality is if you're going to use the phone, if you're going to be connected to the internet, if you want to use services, particularly social services, you are accepting the risk and you need to kind of have that understanding that, look, my data, it's not necessarily private, right? And uh, I know that Facebook, uh, Mark uh, Zuckerberg had alluded to a number of changes that they've made over the years, particularly after this data had been uh, gotten from the platform to try to limit apps in the future from doing this type of stuff. Um, but even if you look backwards and you say, okay, well, what Facebook game did I play in 2010 on my computer? there's a chance that that developer might still have that data. So it's a very difficult thing, I think, to manage and a difficult thing to police. And I think just being kind of cognizant and aware and uh, focused on and really thinking every time you do kind of accept and give new permission to a new app or a new developer, okay, how much do I trust these people and what's the potential for this data to kind of live somewhere outside of uh, what I'm thinking it's going to be doing today? And I think that's really kind of at the crux of what we're seeing here with this Cambridge Analytica story, is that data was passed along for one purpose, and then that developer uh, violated terms of service and used that data for a completely another, a different, per uh, different purpose. Excuse me. Um, so it's a difficult thing for sure, and it's something that I think we're going to be dealing with uh, more, not less, for sure, as we move into the future. Uh, let's I, mean, I, don't dis I don't disagree with that as far as it goes. I mean, the problem is it doesn't go far enough. I mean, this is not just an a matter of individual choice and individuals deciding that they have to either put up with this or not. I mean, one of the things this raises is what we're seeing on the other side of the Atlantic with uh, Cambridge Analytica, particularly, is the Information Commissioner raiding the offices of Cambridge Analytica. You know, you've got much stronger data protection regulations across the European Union with the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, the USA have, has hardly anything that protects privacy. We don't have to put up with this, right? Canada has a much stronger regime. We've got a much stronger federal privacy commissioner than anything that the USA has. The European Union has even stronger regulations. I think we need to think about not just individualized solutions and talking about what individual responsibilities are, but actually regulating these platforms seriously for social benefit. And that means not just accepting that, you know, when we use a platform, we have to give up the rights to our private, the privacy of our data. We've actually got to think about what the Europeans would call data protection as a social and as a political responsibility, a government responsibility. Uh, let's uh, hear from Joyce in Scarborough. Hello, Joyce. Oh, hi, Libby. <clears throat> okay. 
Now, I've listened to all your guests, and uh, they're absolutely right. But these young, uh, I'm not a techie. I'm probably a dinosaur. Uh, <laughs> do I want anybody to know anything about my life? No. And if you give all this information, the young ones think uh, that, uh, oh, no problem. And they give more and more and more. And they never realize, uh, well, like the gentleman said a while back, different hack. I don't want anybody hacking in, in, in just my personal information. Like, uh, and I don't understand people. They just assume, oh, it's hunky-dory. Everything will be good. There's identity theft uh, at a minor thing. And now we've seen, what is it, Cambridge? They, they, uh, they can affect. Uh, elections? Well, that was going to be one of my next questions on on how they they massage this data, but uh, Joyce, I'm assuming you're not on Facebook. (laughs) Never. (laughs) I'm not on any social media. Uh, Like, I I just, like, uh, my friends know who I am. That's sufficient. Um, And and when hackers can get into vital, like, um, I forget all of them right now, into vital banks and all the rest of it, doesn't it scare these people when they've given personal information that can be, they, well, they never think it can be hacked or used against them? Okay, Joyce, thank you for that. Thank you, Libby. Okay, uh, I'm going to give the numbers out again. And actually, I'd like to hear from you if maybe you are on Facebook. A lot of people get on Facebook because uh, for a lot of people, that's the only way that you are going to be able to keep up with your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, because uh, even on email, like they don't, they, they, they won't do a one-on-one email. Uh, so I know a lot of people are on. It can be a good way to keep in touch with family and friends. Uh, so I'm curious to hear from people. And once you're on, uh, are you going to think about getting off? The number's to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Michael Edwards of Sussex Adrenaline and David Murakami Wood. And David, you were just saying that it's a responsibility of government. Uh, you know, I know that our privacy commissioner is also investigating Facebook, but it it almost seems to me it's like you know uh, closing the barn door after the horses have escaped. I don't think that's true. I think you know if we take that attitude, then then it will be right. I mean, I think in this case we can actually recapture the horses and put them back in the barn. I don't think it's you know there's a lot of these metaphors like putting the genie back in the bottle and things and. You know, technology isn't like that. It's not this kind of unstoppable force that we cannot do anything about. And the more we believe that, the more people like Facebook will get away with this. And it is, you know, this is corporate interest in the end. It's not just some unstoppable force of technology. And, and we, if, we, if we take the case of the, the, you know, the case of the democratic problem here, I mean, what we're talking about is a, a platform that is increasingly being used to try to not just uh, take data that's our private data, but also change what we think about things. Facebook's done a lot of work, and a lot of uh, academic research work on how it can influence people's opinions, so-called emotional contagion, that's what they call it. 
Yeah, I, um, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, carry, carry on, sorry. Um, I, was, I was going to ask uh, Michael, so uh, how would they, I mean, this particular instance, people took a personality test, and it gave uh, the company access to not just their information, but their friends' information. So how would a, an analytic company take what you put on your personality test and, and somehow massage that or mine that to uh, help a certain election campaign. Yeah, and I, I think this is the really interesting part of the conversation here, because I actually don't think that at the end of the day, this data, given how old it is, and probably uh, the sophistication of a company like Cambridge Analytica is not anywhere near that of a company like Facebook itself that has tremendous resources to do this type of profiling. But what I imagine they would have done is they would have taken that uh, data and they would have created some psychographic profiles around that. So taking a look at how personality, how interest, how whatever data you've given uh, kind of models you into a specific type of voter. Um, now, I can't speak for the company, but that's what I imagine you would want to do with that data, particularly if you were going to extrapolate that data and try to use it for broader political purposes. But what I think is getting a little bit lost in the conversation here, and what's really worth noting, is that Facebook actually gives advertisers a lot of, this, a lot of these tools and resources already built into the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and those tools and resources are extremely, extremely effective. Uh, that's what our company does. Uh, we run these types of campaigns, political campaigns, uh, public affairs and marketing campaigns online, and we utilize those tools. Now, the difference between what uh, was purported to have happened with Cambridge Analytica and this data and what we do and what most advertisers do is when you're using Facebook's tools, the ones that they give you, all of that privacy, it's all anonymous. So it's all data that you're giving over to Facebook, but we're not receiving your individual data. We're just using tools that Facebook makes available to help us better target and identify people. Um, So is it like big data? Yeah, it's big data. I think uh, I think the easiest way to think of it is Cambridge Analytica tried to make their own big data project to give themselves an advantage in finding voters and finding potential targets for political purposes. Um, but you can use essentially the big data that's available to you from Facebook as an advertiser um, to really achieve the same thing, but doing it in a way that's above board maintaining the privacy and the, the security and ensuring that everything is intact and above board with the end user. So it's kind of an interesting thing, and I can imagine why Facebook is probably uh, feeling a little bit frustrated with this right now, because it seems to me that uh, the data that was taken and the data that's used is probably not even as good at the end of the day as the proper uh, and legal data, let's say, that Facebook provides to advertisers. Okay, but here's the thing, uh, Professor Murakami Wood. Yes, um, Michael is talking about the above-board stuff that advertisers get from Facebook. I don't think that most users really, really get that it's an advertising company and that that some of their information is being used one way or another to help the advertisers. Am I right? I agree with you. And I think, in fact, it's quite amusing that in some ways to us who study this from an academic point of view that, you know, we're now painting the the, the legitimate marketing use of Facebook as being a good thing as opposed to the bad uh, use by Cambridge Analytica. I mean, yes, this is a a massive marketing surveillance operation. 
And most people do not realize that. Most people, as we know, do not read the terms of service, the end user licensing agreements and things that comes with this. In fact, for most platforms, it is impossible for you to spend your time doing this. They're too long. They're too extensive. Yeah. You don't have the legal expertise. And you want to do what you want to do, and you won't do it unless you hit agree. Yeah, I mean, somebody did a calculation of how much it would take, how much time it would take if you wanted to read all the privacy policies, the licensing agreements and everything of all the apps we sign up for, and we'd be taking hours of our lives doing this stuff. So we don't do that. And, of course, these companies bank on that fact that we don't really know what's going on most of the time. Cambridge Analytica, they're not wizards, right? This is, this is kind of perception out there that they're sort of some kind of weird magicians who are able to do magical things with data. I mean, all the indications are they're actually, you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors involved here. They're selling, you know, a product to people, as, as Michael says, you know, that are not necessar- it's not necessarily anything unique or brilliant. What they're doing, though, is they're particularly marketing, marketing it to a very particular political part of the political spectrum. And this is where it gets interesting. They're a company that's run by a holding company that's, ru- that's run by a very far-right figure in American politics. And they generally put their weight behind particular campaigns that, that, that benefit a sort of right-wing agenda, whether it's Trump or Brexit in the UK. They've also intervened very nastily in some global south elections, particularly in Nigeria. And you know, in fact, they're one of the least bad of these sorts of operators. There's a company called Palantir, which we should be talking about as well, run by um, Peter Thiel, who's one of the most obnoxious human beings on this planet. Um, who, you know, he's also on the Facebook board, by the way. Uh, and they do really serious interventions in, in the political lives of different countries and in different kinds of campaigns. I mean, again, this is all marketing. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, from my point of view, it doesn't matter if it's it's right or, or left. It's um, it's it's happening, and you know, I guess uh, it's it's kind of the technological um, extension of marketing and polling mm-hmm. and and all of those things that existed before the internet. Absolutely, and I think you know, Michael can tell you probably as, as you know as much as anybody else about the history of that kind of. Marketing. I, mean, I think we do have to worry about the marketing itself. It's probably where I differ strongly uh, from, my, from my colleague here is that, you know, I think the marketing itself is not just legitimate. It's not just okay because Facebook agrees to give a certain amount of packaged data to marketing companies to do so-called above-board marketing. I think you're right that people do not know enough about this. I don't think it's strongly enough regulated or controlled. The question is, you know, where, what's the right level of control or regulation and who's going to do it? And how are people going to actually take back more control over their data? Yeah, it's not just enough, for example, for people to be paid for their data in some kind of way like that, because that doesn't actually deal with the fundamental problem. Now, of course, my colleague probably doesn't think that marketing is a fundamental problem, but I do. <laughs> okay, uh, let's take a call from Angela in Cambridge. Hello, Angela. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? A little frustrated. Go ahead. Um, a colleague of mine, an educator with the Ontario Teachers, was suspended from his um, duties for two weeks because pictures of his um, stag and doe mm-hmm. were on the Facebook, and one of the parents got a hold of it. Uh huh. He got suspended until they could check to see why he had a little too much to drink. He is one of the best educators you can imagine. Yes, on his stag and doe, he had too much to drink. But excuse me, does that mean that he's not a real person? Does that mean that he doesn't have a life? 
Um, well, uh, one of the things that's come up that people and a lot of them have learned the hard way is that, um, you know, your digital footprint, the things you put on social media can come back to bite you in your work life. So, um, yeah, that it, that it, it does sound very harsh if you're talking about somebody, uh, you know, who had, had a few drinks at his stag party before his wedding. But that's all it was. It's, but it's, um, it's, it's a reality of the new digital world. Well, I just want to tell you that as a fantastic educator, I'm glad that everything was cleared up. I'm really glad that they looked into his qualities as an educator. And the parent who caused the uh, UPLA was the one who got into his site. And I don't know how well protected these sites are because they shouldn't have been able to get in there. Okay, thank you for that, Angela. Have a wonderful day. Okay, um, we are uh, running out of time on this. So, um, Michael, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I, I mean, uh, first, thanks for having me on. It, it's a great conversation, and I, I've enjoyed having it. I think uh, if I could uh, impose one thing on your listeners or have them be considerate of, is just to think about kind of the broader context here. Um, I'm not apologizing for Facebook uh, by any means, um, but I think as the professor said multiple times, this is part of a bigger conversation. Um, and I think what we're doing right now is we're sensationalizing one thing because it ties together a bunch of different things, privacy, politics, Donald Trump, Facebook. Um, but I think and I hope that we'll see that there's a bigger story out here. And I do have some hope. I definitely have some hope that there's a way to move forward where users can feel protected and confident using not just Facebook, but all of these platforms, uh, but still some of those marketing and those business objectives and the things that really, at the end of the day, pay the bills for these companies, uh, they can continue to be productive and uh, useful tools for marketers, both small and large alike. Um, so that's what I would like to leave you with. Okay, thanks. And uh, Professor Murakami-Wood. Well, what I'm more concerned with here is not so much whether marketers get data and whether companies can profit off it, but whether individuals can take back control of their personal data and how that might be achieved. And there's all sorts of ways this could happen. One of the ways is actually to think, not to think of the, the only possibility for these kind of social networks as being corporate ones. Um, there's an emerging movement called platform cooperativism, which is trying to think about how one might make cooperatively run citizen-centered sorts of platforms that would actually not take the kind of commercial imperative as being the predominant rationale for, for this sort of social media operation. It's a small movement, but it's one of many different kinds of potential solutions that may, in this case, not involve you know, harsh regulation from, from nation-states, which in any case might not succeed because these platforms transcend nation-states. So there's all kinds of different possibilities, and I, I think one of the things we don't necessarily want to accept is that you know, these just things just have to be the way they are, just slightly better. I think we can imagine some different alternatives, and I think that's imperative in this situation. And this, you know, kind of particular scandal opens up things so we can have that kind of conversation. Okay. Uh, thank you both. Fascinating conversation that I'm sure we will have to revisit. Right now, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, your health news you can use with our trusted contributors from the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Uh, Dean Miller will be taking your call. So before we go to break, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And we will be right back.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.